And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three, four weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Let's uh, go to the Lord and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for this time. We can look into your word and we pray that our hearts would be prepared for it. Lord, we pray for the working of your spirit within us, Lord, in ways that would direct us into your truth and open up our eyes and our understanding. As Gabriel sought to give Daniel understanding, Father, we pray for the same thing now. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding, knowledge, and Father, wisdom to be able to live what we learn. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the precious word of God, which we have in our hands and which we can learn from and grow, grow through and be nourished by. And we thank you once again for these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, Italians tend to pride themselves on their cooking skills. Huh? <laughs> Very proud. It's a, pr- it's a problem there, though, right? I saw a, uh, I saw a, a YouTube video or, or, or a thing that... There was, they were in England and they had an Italian chef on making spaghetti carbonara and he made his special version of spaghetti carbonara and uh, the, what the host of this show said, oh, it tastes like exactly like the one that I make with bacon or whatever it is or ham or whatever. He goes, and he gave it this really like, look like, what are you talking about? You know, it's offensive that you gave me. He goes, and you could see him thinking, saying like, what's she saying? Like, it's exactly like her one. This is a totally different recipe. And he said... Yes, and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a mo- uh, she'd be a push bike. <laughs> I remember growing up. I remember growing up, um, uh, going to wedding after wedding. I'm not sure if it probably hasn't happened in our generation, but with all the migrants that came over to Australia from Italy, one of the most vivid memories I have was going to so many weddings because as they grew their families, they had children, and and they all got married, and so my teen years were. You know, filled with wedding after wedding after wedding. And Italian weddings, if you've been, just to give you an idea, like our wedding, we had 320 people there, right? They don't do that sort of weddings anymore, do they? Um, and we invited relatives, and we got Italians have, you know, first, second, third, fourth. They count, I don't know how many different ranges of cousins they've got, but we invited people that we hadn't seen for a year or two years, and relatives and, and people from the villages back in Italy and all sorts of stuff. So, and you have to feed them. And so one of, the, one of the biggest things about Italians is that you can never send anyone home hungry because mm. if you don't feed them enough, they're going to go home and, and complain about the food and then it's going to get around. So Italian weddings are always filled with food. You know what I mean? Like there's about five courses that, take, you know, that, that they have coming up. Well, I'm telling you all that to tell you this, is that last week, part of my job as a pastor is to prepare the weekly meal for you, isn't it? So I think I gave you at least five, five courses last week, oh, right? Yes. And I do appreciate you guys actually sitting through that because it was a lot. And the challenge I had last week was, do I do the whole chapter in one go? Mary said, well, if it was me, I would have done three sermons from that. Well, I squeeze it all into one. So, and maybe it's because of technology. I think you can actually go back and keep on watching it over again. But it was a long sermon, but it was a blessing if you understand it. And that was my whole goal. If you can understand the meaning of those 70 weeks, and it doesn't mean you need to understand every detail, but if you understand how that came about, then it helps you to understand the rest of the scripture, especially Revelation. And so I hope that was a blessing to you. And this morning, 
we're continuing our look at. We're up to chapter 10, so we've only got a couple more to go. And I'm hoping to get through the whole of this chapter today, but it's a lot less, it's a whole lot less maths for you, okay? So don't you don't have to stress about it. So we're up to the third year of Cyrus's reign. It says there, and Daniel, by this stage, had retired from public life. So for most of his life, Daniel was in a, 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 an official position. He was either a governor, an advisor, a counsellor. He had very, very high positions, often actually advising you know, some of the most powerful men on the planet at that stage, including Nebuchadnezzar um, and, and now Cyrus. But now he was retired. And he's over 90 years of age. And I'm not sure if you remember, but Cyrus had given a decree three years earlier that the Jews could return home to begin rebuilding their temple and start settling back into their own town. And where's Daniel here? He hasn't gone back. And for whatever reason, he didn't go back with the rest of his his people. And they didn't all go back. Many of them actually still stayed. But, but many went back to rebuild the temple and to, and to begin their, their lives again. Um, Daniel still finds himself in Babylon. And maybe he was too old for the journey. We don't know. Maybe it, was, maybe it was too much of a trip for him. Probably not. Or maybe the Lord still wanted him to stay in Babylon. And to continue to be faithful there and to continue what he had done for literally the last 75 years of his life, which was to be a faithful light in a foreign land, um, a light in the darkness. And he did just that. You know, most people, given the opportunity to finally go back home and see the place where they had lived and prospered, you know, under King David and King Solomon, to see their temple again, and to live according to their own faith and culture without being suppressed or being you know, inhibited in that, to follow their own laws and their own customs, um, would jump at the chance, wouldn't they? And I know we've endured a number of lockdowns here in Melbourne, and it feels great to be able to fellowship again, to be out and about again, to be meeting up with people that you love, you know, that you haven't seen for a long time, and we need to spare a thought for those who got stuck overseas for so long and weren't able to even come back to be with their families. But imagine being forcibly taken from your home at the age of about 13 years uh, in, in a war-like uh, scenario and taken to a foreign land and forced to live there for the next 75 years. Imagine that. Um, and then where there's an opportunity to go back to your home and to finally just rest there, God says, no, I want you to stay here. Would you complain? Would I complain? <laughs> Daniel doesn't lament himself at all um, in regard to his position. And if anyone deserved the right to complain and deserved the right to actually go back home after his faithful life of service to the Lord, it was him. But he would never again see his homeland. He would never again see the temple that he had grown up uh, and, and been trained in. Daniel did not spend any time complaining about how this had happened to him and why he should be stuck in Babylon. He was simply content to be where God wanted him. Why? Because he knew the Lord was with him. 
regardless of whether he, in ba- whether he was in Babylon or whether he was back in the Holy Land or whether he was in, in any other place, Daniel, it seems from his testimony, he knew quite well the Lord was with him every step of the way and that was the most important thing to him. And that's an amazing, it's an amazing testimony for all of us who live in this world. Um, being a child of God means that you and I live in a foreign land. This is not our home. The Bible clearly tells us that. This is not our home. In fact, if this were our home, the Bible would not call us ambassadors. Because ambassadors are people who represent another country who have been sent to a foreign land. Which means we are living in a foreign land. We are living among people who don't know the Lord, who aren't fellow citizens with us. But we know that God is preparing a city for us. That actually now, even now, the Lord Jesus is actually building homes for us. Have thought about that? Yeah, it took God six days to create the whole universe. How long has Jesus been preparing these houses for? Can you imagine what it's going to be like? And we know that there's a heavenly city that is our home that's been prepared for us that we will live in according to Hebrews chapter 11. And what that should mean for us is that our hearts are not anchored here. But they're, it's anchored, they're anchored there, in that place. It means that we shouldn't see from the perspective of this world, but that our eyes should always see from the perspective of that world, because that's our home. And the other comfort that we have, knowing that we have a home already uh, set aside for us, and that there is nothing that can stop us from getting home, because God guarantees it, is the fact that in this foreign land, that every step of the way, the Saviour who bought us by his own blood is walking with us. And regardless of what situation we find ourselves in, which part of the world we might be, whatever our circumstances, aren't you comforted by the fact that Jesus is with you now? We are truly never alone. Truly. Even in the worst circumstance, we are never, ever alone. God never abandons his children. The Lord Jesus told us he would never leave us nor forsake us. And Daniel knew this all too well, even after 75 years in a foreign land. And at this advanced age, at over 90 years of age, Daniel has another vision that God gives him, which shows him even more detail. And if if you've sort of cottoned on to what's been going on. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream all the way back at the beginning of this book where he dreams of that statue and that statue represents you know, four different types of kingdom and then a final kingdom at the end. And what Daniel has been is building and building and building on that detail. With every new revelation, it builds on that. And it's telling Daniel, it's telling us because of Daniel's faithfulness to record these things, it's telling us that God knew from the beginning what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow. And that should give us great comfort. So Daniel at 90 years of age plus is given another vision about what would come in the future. But it would still be, it says, a long way off. It says, but the time appointed was long. But he understood its significance. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle John has a vision like this at an advanced age as well. We're going to be looking at that in more detail in a minute. We're going to parallel those two visions 
and we're going to see an amazing thing between those two gentlemen. But what did ever thought what Daniel actually saw? You know, to cause him to fast, to not to eat, to mourn for three whole weeks. I mean, what causes someone to mourn for three, to cry for three weeks? What did he see? Well, he essentially, by the looks of it, saw the future of his people. And he loved his people. He saw, possibly, the wars that would be fought. Actually, he did, as described. The wars that were fought in the future over his people's land again. He saw thousands of years, probably, of hatred and violence and sin and bloodshed. He saw his people wandering in a wilderness, not for 40 years, what they did before, because that was past, not for the 70 years they were locked up in captivity, because that was too past, that was also past, but now he sees for thousands of years they're still going to be in captivity. They're still going to be under oppression. They're still not going to be free. Because of their stubborn hearts, thousands of years of trials, tribulations and persecution. I wonder if he saw what would happen to his people during the Middle Ages. I wonder if he saw what, he ha- what would happen to his people during the Second World War, when millions of them would be murdered, gassed, and everything else that happened to them. I wonder if he saw the Antichrist and what he would do to them in their greatest hour of trouble. I wonder if he saw the rejection of his of the Messiah by his people when he rode into Jerusalem as their king. I wonder if he saw the consequence of that and the destruction of the temple again when the Romans advanced and besieged the city in 70 AD. I wonder if he saw all that. Whatever he saw, it caused him to mourn for three weeks. He didn't need any... It says he didn't need any uh, pleasant bread, uh, nor came flesh. He didn't eat any meat. He didn't eat any fancy food. He ate very plain by the looks of it. He still ate. Didn't have any wine. He just ate probably water. And he didn't even look after himself, he says, and anoint himself. I suppose that knowing the future can be a double-edged sword sometimes. Have you ever have you ever wanted to see the future? Have you ever, you know, who would want to see the future? Who, who would lo- like to know what the future holds? Yeah, there are. Maybe, sure, maybe, I should ask, maybe I should ask, who doesn't want to know the future? But have you thought that if you knew the future that you might see the hour of your death, that you might see the hour that a loved one dies and you you know what's going to happen in advance? Or what about if you saw some cataclysmic event that's going to happen to us as a a church or or as a town or whether something... would, Would that be happy to have that knowledge in here and to have to know it, but you can't actually give it to other people. You can't actually... It can't actually do anything. You can't do anything about it because you know what's going to happen. I mean, what would what would knowing that information? Because you know, the future always holds good and bad, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. I wonder what we would do with that information. Whether we once we knew it, whether we'd actually say no, <laughs> take it back, because knowing the future is not necessarily what it's cut out to be. You know, there's an amazing, as I said, an amazing parallel between Daniel. And, um, and the Apostle John. And John has a similar uh, vision. Turn to Revelation chapter 10 with me. 
because John is also given a vision about the end of the world. And I want you to take note of what happens to John as well when he, when he hears these things. Revelation chapter 10 verse 8 says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. You know, it can be a sweet thing to know in the future. You know, immediately, oh, I know the future. I know this. I know that. You know, it, it would give you an immediate sense of either control or security, if you know what I mean. But what about what comes after that knowledge? I mean, when John ate that book, when he ate it all up, it was sweet in his mouth. Yeah, look what I know. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's fantastic that we know the future, that we know what's coming. And we, sometimes we, we sort of, you know, I suppose we have to be careful about this, that we boast because we know the future and other people don't. But have you ever considered what the future's holding for the majority of this world? Yeah, it's sweet to know the future. But it's also bitter. Mm when you know the consequence of what's coming. Yeah, for us as believers, it's sweet because we know God wins in the end, right? But it also means that we should be mourning for the people of this world, as Daniel mourned for his people. And we should always be careful about not becoming too detached, not becoming too hard-hearted, thinking that, oh, I'm okay. See, I'm in, I'm in the good group and dismissing the rest of the billions of people on this planet who are heading for an eternity without God. So should we mourn as believers? Yeah, we should. I mean, I love the fellowship we have in this church. We're always joking around and have a wonderful time together. But deep down, we should be mourning as well. We should be mourning for what we see around us, for the salvation that's been rejected by most of the world, we should be mourning for the state of the church in this present age. Um, and we should, and, and knowing what's coming should cause us not to live more for ourselves, but more for them. It should cause us to live more for God, knowing that these days are numbered, that we only have a short time. And we've been called not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on others. Obviously, God is our first love. But we've been called to love others, which ultimately means living lives that are like Jesus lived for us. How did Jesus live for us? He lived perfectly and he sacrificed himself for us. And can I ask you a question? Do you think God expects less of you for the people of this world? They're called to live for the, the lives of this world. Do souls have any value to us? Do their souls mean anything to us? And that should be a driving force for us, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners like me. And what are we doing for those sinners out there? 
You see, the Bible says that we are His hands and His feet in this world. We represent Him. We are His body in this world. And if we don't live like He lived, then we are not walking according to His will. Jesus did not come into this world to, to be ministered to, He says, but He came to minister. And so that should be our calling as well, to be servants to people in this world so that they might be saved, so that even one person might be saved and we might make that difference in their lives. So we should always be joyful with what we have, but that should always be tempered with what other people don't have. And always let love break your heart. But turn to look at verse 4 of Daniel, because something else happens after he has mourned and fasted for those three weeks, it says, and in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as he, as he describes his vision now, and in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was like the beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet were in colour to polish brass, and the voice of his... Uh, words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. So Daniel, by the looks of it, is having a picnic along the banks of the, of the Hidakal River all right, with some friends. And they're there, and uh, as people like to, looks like to have, they like to have picnics near uh, along the river bank. So some things haven't changed. Uh, we couldn't find the river, by the way, today, so sorry about that. Um, so while he's there enjoying uh, time with uh, these uh, people that were with him, it says that he sees a vision of a man clothed in linen. He's got uh, gold around his waist. His colour is like beryl, which is actually like a translucent sort of colour. Um, it can be actually different colours, beryl. His face, though, is like lightning. That's a face like lightning. It's extraordinary. His eyes are like fire, his arms and legs like polished brass, and his voice like thousands of people all saying the same thing at the same time. Now picture that in your mind. And though he was the only one who sees the vision, something happened to the rest of them. Something like an earthquake. They started shaking and the earth started shaking and they all, they all fled like good friends do. You just run and leave, leave you behind. But who does Daniel see in his vision? Who is this person that's dressed like this and looks like this? And who fits this description? Well, as we've seen, there's another fellow who saw a vision of the same person. And it's in Revelation chapter 1. So turn with me there. And maybe keep your, keep your hand or your finger in that place in Daniel chapter 10 verse 4, just so you can actually have a, a quick comparison. But have a listen to this and tell me if you think that it's similar. The Apostle John here writing, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, 
and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Who did John see? Who did Daniel see? They both saw the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, the one who was dead and is alive forevermore, the same person that holds the keys of hell and death, that person is Jesus Christ. Daniel saw what we call a pre-incarnate Christ. He saw... He saw the Son of God before he had been born of a virgin and and lived the life of a man and died for the sins of the world. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ. The Apostle John sees the, the incarnate Christ. One is not given the name really Jesus because he was given the name Jesus when he was born. He was simply the Son of God before. But after that, he is the one who had died and is alive forevermore. And look at what John... What's interesting is that both John and Daniel have the same reaction when they see him. Look what happens to John. He sees him, and what happens to him? Does he start jumping around for joy and, uh, and feeling good about himself? No, he's quite, he gets knocked out. He falls flat on his face. And as if he's dead, when he sees something that was too much for him to actually take in at once... He'd seen the glory of his risen saviour and it was just too overwhelming and he lands, lands flat on his face and he is like a dead man. And you'll notice in John, when John has this encounter with Christ, it says Jesus himself touches him. And he says, you know, he says, get up, get up. But when Daniel has this vision, someone else touches him, not Jesus. Well, Jesus touched John himself. Someone else touches Daniel, who was sent to Daniel to strengthen him and to explain the vision that he had just seen. So notice the words in Daniel chapter 10. Let me see if I've got this one right. think 11 and 12. So you'll notice it says, For unto thee I am now sent. So you'll see what it says there? And he said unto me, O Daniel, O man greatly beloved. Have I read this passage to you yet? Verses 8 to 12. Sorry, I think I've jumped, I've jumped the gun. Turn to Daniel chapter 10 verse 8. 
And we'll now read Daniel's uh, vision. So Daniel chapter 10, verse 8. Have I read this one already? No, I haven't. Okay. So Daniel 10, 8 says, Therefore, I was left alone. So Daniel's friends had run off. And I just want to compare what had happened to John as to Daniel. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision. And there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of the words. And when I heard the voice of his words, there was a... Then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands, and said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee I am now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So Daniel had seen Jesus Christ in his glory, and he ends up in the same place that the Apostle John did. On his face, on the ground, he says, he describes it as a deep sleep. Okay? Um, the Apostle John describes himself as being knocked out like a, like a dead man. But the difference with those two accounts is that in John's uh, vision, Jesus actually comes and touches him. In Daniel's vision, there's someone else now who says, I have been come, I've been sent to you now to explain what you've just seen, including that vision of Jesus in all of his glory. So, but notice what he says, what he says to Daniel, for unto thee I am now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I have come from other words. Hang on a sec, we've just we've heard these before these words. We've heard these exact words somewhere before. And you should remember them because they're on the previous chapter, in chapter 9. So go back to chapter 9, verse 21. And this person who touches Daniel to encourage him to get up on his feet. is describing himself as here. So Daniel 9.21 says, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening ablation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Who'd been sent to Daniel again? Gabriel. This is a few years later. This is about three years later. So Gabriel... So Daniel has this vision of Jesus. He ends up flat on his face like the Apostle John. The difference, though, is John's touched by Christ himself. And Jesus actually says, here, get up. And Jesus encourages him. But Daniel has Gabriel to come and do the same thing. And the words we see are pretty identical in those two passages between chapter 10 and chapter 9. The angel who was sent to comfort Daniel and get him back up on his feet because he passed out, essentially, was the angel Gabriel again. 
And he says something to him, and he says from the, you know, because you want to know the truth. He says, because, you, because you've wanted to know the truth, because you've sought the truth, because you've, you've, um, you've prayed, I've come to give you understanding. He'd answered his prayer. You know, like John, Daniel des- desired to know the truth. And he prayed fervently to understand it. The curse of our modern society is an overwhelming amount of information. Would you agree? How much information do we have in this world? I mean, seriously. I mean, if you were, if you go back 20 or 30 years, um, if you had a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, you were the smartest person on the block. Right? I had the Columbia. We couldn't afford the Britannica. <laughs> the ones you used to get once every week. Is that right? You get that one? Yeah. Um, but if you had a set of encyclopedias which you'd go to, which had they had to keep on adding more and more information because things would change, remember? You had to keep on adding to them because they, they, they got out of date. Now, where do you go to find your information? So who uses Google to find everything? Yeah, see? But confess all your sins now because it's Google. <laughs> I have to make the same confession. You know, the first thing when I think, you know what I use it for the most? When I see a word that I'm not quite sure if it means this, I'll quickly go and look up the meaning on Google. Do you guys do the same thing? Yeah. Anyway, it's good for that sort of thing. Wikipedia is a little bit dodgy sometimes, but it's okay. <laughs> but there's so much information in this world. Mm. We, are, we are actually we have a flood of information. Now, everywhere you look, there's, there's people telling us how to tie shoelaces and what clothes to wear and whatever. Doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's Instagram, whether it's you know Facebook, whatever. There's always people telling you information, giving you information. There's a ton of garbage, but there's plenty of information out there at our fingertips, more than any other generation before us. We have an ever increasing amount of knowledge, but I would say there's a drought of understanding because sometimes there's so much knowledge, there's so much information, you just can't sift your way through all the garbage to actually find the truth and then settle on that. So I believe that there's a, we are living in a day of huge amount of knowledge and information, but a lack of understanding. People are drowning in information, but struggle to understand it properly. And there's, not a, no, there's no greater deficiency in understanding than in spiritual matters. Because that's often seen in this world as a, just a thing on the side, like a hobby. You know what I mean? So you've got a hobby? That's good. You keep your hobby to yourself and you keep your hobby to yourself. And, you know, don't tell me I should follow your hobby and you should do my hobby. This is a personal preference, right? Religion and faith. And so it's always put in a back burner. When it comes to spiritual matters, there's a great drought of knowledge, of understanding, I should say. And there's a great drought in our time of spiritual understanding. So now we have the words of an angel who's come to the angel Gabriel, who's come to Daniel, and the words of this angel are recorded for us. So two and a half thousand years later, we have the words of this angel's interpretation and explanation to Daniel. And we're going to see these in the next chapter as well, right? And we've got these things recorded for us, which are perfect truth, which is absolute perfect truth. And 
It's accounted as truth because the messenger has been sent from God with that truth. With words that must be obeyed. With words that aren't grey but are actually purely black and white. Which words give us understanding. But in these last days the Bible tells us that God didn't send angels into the world. Who did he send? Jesus. He sent his own son into the world with a message. And Hebrews puts it like this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. So we're told in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time should, uh, we should let them slip. For if the words spoken by angels were steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So what's the message, message here? If the message that angels delivered was important enough to obey and that if you didn't obey that message, um, you were actually... There was going to be retribution for that. There was going to be punishment if you failed to obey it. He's saying how much more when the Son of God delivers his message to the world personally. If the judgments and precepts delivered by angels were important to obey, what about the gospel message that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave the world whom he saved? How important is that message? Delivered by the Son of God. But sadly, as more than two and a half thousand years have passed since the, well, two thousand years have passed since the Great Commission, we see the vast majority of the world neglect that message. They are neglecting it, the message of salvation. The majority of the world, the vast majority of the world, is still ignorant of the gospel, which is even more sad. And the lands where the gospel was once understood have become lands where the gospel is now not understood. And they've become ignorant about it. And so that's what makes our time here so, so important. And why it is also to our shame that the one thing the devil can do to us is to keep us preoccupied with earthly things. To keep us focused on ourselves, on our concerns and our own pleasures. I know we, needed to be we need to be reminded of this regularly. But we too often fail to see the value, as I've said, of a human soul. Otherwise, we would do a lot more to save that one soul. So the devil who has lost us, he can't... He can't gain us back now, has devised a cunning plan to keep us occupied. And occupied he has. 
during this pandemic with fears within, fears without. So the gospel message given to us by our Lord shines even less dimly than it did before. We need to understand that we are in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle is for the souls of men, for the souls of people in this world. And when we were saved, who enlisted in that army? We all did. When you and I got saved, we not only were saved to a life of comfort, we were saved to a life of fighting. I'm not talking about verbal abuse. I'm not talking about uh, fighting with arms or anything like that. I'm talking about the good fight the Bible speaks about, a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle means that we should all be engaged in it because it's raging everywhere around us. <coughs> And we were, when we were saved, we automatically were enlisted in the army of the Lord. We cannot die. We cannot die. We cannot be lost. But we can squander the time of God. We can be concerned about silly things in this world and forget our purpose here. We should be concerned for the dying and we can mourn for the dead for their death will not end. The enemy, from my understanding, being in the ministry for 15 or so years and being a believer since 89, it's a long time ago, isn't it? And some of you, it's a lot, a lot more. Is that the enemy is growing in confidence. Do you see that? He's growing more bold. He's growing in more confidence. He's growing more arrogant. And while he is growing more arrogant, as more and more souls slip into, into an, an eternity without God, the church is asleep. The church is asleep in the light while the world burns in the darkness. So we need to wake up from our slumber. We need to see the need of people around us. We need to stop fearing for ourselves. We need to stop putting ourselves at the centre of our universe and put God back in the centre. And if you put God back in the centre, and Christ is the centre of your life, then you will do what he does and what he did, which is come to save the souls of men. We will stop consuming our efforts on our flesh. We will stop worrying about what's coming tomorrow because there is a task at hand that it's all too important to be sidetracked from. We should instead fight the good fight for the souls of men and the glory of God. The resistance against the word of God today is great. And the resistance against what the light is more than ever. Our, our world has a lot of good stuff about it, but it's doing it in rebellion against God. It's doing it saying, I don't need God. There are plenty of bad things in this world. And there's plenty of resistance against the word of God. The devil does not want you to deliver the message of the gospel to your friends, your family, your work colleagues, or every, anyone you come into contact with. He does not want you to open your mouth. 
So let me ask you, do you open your mouth? Do you speak the truth? What do you speak more of? This world's things or of God's things? Turn to Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 as we wrap this, this passage up. Daniel 10 13. Because even when God sent his angel Gabriel to deliver a message to Daniel, even then they experienced resistance. It tells us in Daniel 10.13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. That's 21 days that the, the prince of Persia stopped Gabriel from delivering a message. From, how, from getting Gabriel to understand, to getting Daniel to understand. He said, then, but lo, Michael, one of the th- chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb. Gabriel a messenger from heaven was resisted for 21 days from delivering his message to Daniel. It took another angel, another archangel to come and help him in that fight to break through. Imagine the resistance. Why would the devil resist so hard this thing? Because he knew. He knew that whatever Gabriel, whatever Gabriel was delivering to Daniel, it was probably going to end up in the book of life that we have. And we're reading it two and a half thousand years later. So he wanted, he did everything in his power to stop that from happening, from get, from that message getting through. Do you think the battle has subsided? Do you think the devil's now put down his arms and he's and he's happy for the gospel to go out anywhere it likes? No. The battle hasn't subsided. And now the battle rages to stop you, not angels, you and me. If you stopped an, tried to stop an angel from getting through with a message, you can rest assured he's got a, a devil keeping an eye on you. And the first thing he's going to want to do, because God doesn't deliver messages through angels now. He delivers messages through you. So the devil can stop you, he's done his job. If the devil can stop you from living a life for Christ, he's done his job. If you can live a life that's inconsistent with the gospel, he's done his job. Because who's going to listen to a message from someone who says one thing and lives another? No one wants to take take advice from a hypocrite. So if the devil can get you to do any of those things, if you can keep your mouth shut, then he's winning the battle with you. And my question to you this morning is, are we soldiers in this war? Are we active soldiers or are we spectators sitting on the side, too concerned with our own lives, too concerned with our own things, to actually be focused on the war? This war has seen the most diabolical pathogen destroy countless lives. We can't count the number of people this thing has killed. This virus from hell that has a 100% kill rate is still raging around this world. 
And there's only one cure for it, which is the blood of the Savior. You need a blood transfusion to get this thing sorted out. Now, this is not COVID that kills 1% or 2% of the people that it infects. No, this is sin that kills 100% of everyone who's infected. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. By one man sin entered into the world. What do they call that case number zero? What do they call that one? Patient zero. Patient zero. There's your patient zero. Adam. And every person is infected as a result of Adam. It's passed down from generation to generation to generation and everyone's infected and everyone ends up getting a full-blown disease because everyone becomes a sinner. That's the result of this virus. And we have the diagnosis. The diagnosis for all of mankind. We have the prognosis. And it's not good at all. It's death. Death in a place separated from God for all eternity. You know what a quarantine is? Quarantined. For all of eternity. There's no vaccine for this. Everyone gets it. God himself told us about this plague and he provided us the cure and it cost him big time. It cost him his only son to provide the cure for this one. And now, what are we doing? As God's messengers to this world, as the ones who now are doing the work that the angels were doing in the Old Testament, what are we doing? Oh, we're too busy. We're too busy maybe building a future here. We're too busy uh, building a career. I'm too busy. I'm too afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow. I have to think about what's, what I have to do to counter what the government's going to do tomorrow. I have to worry about this cure or that cure or this vaccine or that, or that thing. We are so caught up in all the news of the day as if the news of the day is going to make any difference to the eternity of the souls of men. It makes zero. When you look at, when you look at how important the news that we watch on our news channels is, and compare it to the job we have to do, and the little time we have, how can we waste it? Let's speak. Let's open our mouths. Let's be aware of what the devil is trying to do to us. Because if he can keep us preoccupied, he's got us where he wants us. If we're too afraid to speak, if we're so consumed with ourselves that we don't share the truth that cured us, if I don't share the cure that cured me with other people because I'm so concerned about myself, what sort of a person does that make me? makes me a terrible person. What type of person does that make us? What type of people are we? What type of message are we selling here? Let's open our mouths 
and speak the truth in love. To share that perfect cure with boldness and purity. And let's see what Daniel 16 to 18 tells us. It says, And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. And I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, he strengthened me. You know, sometimes, like Daniel, we feel drained. I don't know if you feel drained every now and then. I feel drained sometimes. Drained. And you feel as if you have no energy. And sometimes you feel powerless. But I'll tell you something. If an angel touched Daniel and he strengthened him to be able to speak again, what about us who are touched by the Spirit of God? What about us who have the Spirit of the living God living inside them? What excuse do we have? Daniel was drained, yet an angel strengthened him. What about us who have the Son of God residing within us and walking with us every step of the way? It says here Daniel had to be touched twice by that angel in order for him to have enough strength to stand up. But a simple word from Jesus can raise a man from the dead. Who is stronger? An angel or the Son of God? So the Lord commands you and me for every day that we walk on this earth. We've been entrusted with the same message that, that delivered our souls to deliver to these people around us. Because we are greatly beloved and God still loves the world. He still loves it. He didn't just love it 2,000 years ago when he sent his son. He still loves it. He hasn't stopped loving it. And so Daniel 10, 19 says, And, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. And said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid. If you're a child of God, do not be afraid. You have zero to be afraid of. What are they, what's the worst they can come and do to you and me? Kill us? Really? They're doing me a favour. <laughs> do you not get it? If you're a believer, what do you have to fear? There's nothing they can take away from you. They can't rob you of your salvation. They can't rob you of your relationship with God. What can they do? You lock, it up, lock you up in a prison. Start writing letters like the Apostle Paul. There's nothing that we are to be afraid of. The Lord is my shepherd. Remember that one? I shall not want. I have no fear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I've got no fear. Anyone walk through the valley of the shadow of death lately? Don't be consumed. And then he says, not only fear not, he says, peace be to you. Peace be to him, to Daniel. But you and I have, guess who? The Prince of Peace who lives within us. The Prince of Peace. When God speaks to us through his word, we are strengthened by it. 
Don't resist it. Don't forget it. Don't deny it. Don't be distracted by the enemy who would love to keep you weak, fearful and without peace. Let me ask you this morning, which better epitomises your life? And be honest with yourself. Now, I don't know your heart, okay? Which better epitomises your life? Fearless, peaceful and strong or frightened, filled with conflict and feeble? How would you describe your life this morning? Which better suits you? You know the answer. I don't. But you can, like Daniel, receive that word and choose to understand it. But would you accept it? That's the question. If it were true of me, if someone said to me, you're weak, you're feeble, the question is, is my ego so big, is my flesh so strong that I don't want, that I don't, I let it go over my head and I don't want to accept it? Because you're never going to make any difference in your life. You're never going to make a change unless you accept the truth. We can all live lies. Hey, you can live whatever lie you like. Hey, you can tell everyone else about the lie too and say, I'm fine, I'm all good. But there are two people you really can't fool. And the first one is God who knows you inside out. And the second one is probably yourself because he's probably already revealed to you what that truth is but you'd like to keep it subdued. God encourages us, helps to grow, helps us to overcome the sins and faults in our lives and weaknesses in our lives, but we have to accept them first. You see, we would never have come to the Lord. We would never have repented and, and been saved if I never got to the stage where I admitted that I was a sinner before God. Isn't that true? If I never admitted that I was a sinner, why would I even come to the Lord? I wouldn't have. But I got to the point where I said, God, I'm a sinner and I'm not good enough to save myself. There is nothing good in me. I need Jesus to save me. Correct? Now, we've done that, right? Now, why is it so hard for us to give up the other stuff after? Why is it so hard for us to admit our faults to be always on edge if someone says something, you know, that might touch my ego. What's, what is it with us? Are we so fearful? Are we so scared? Once we become the children of God, the devil is doing his absolute best to keep you and me grounded. Yet God builds us up through his word. But we have to be listening, ready to accept what it says. It's because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick. And powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So my question this morning as I wrap it up, where do you stand in the light of this message? In the light when you compare yourself to Daniel. How do you stand? Where do you stand? What is your condition before God? Are you a sinner in desperate need of salvation this morning? Well then today is that day. And don't delay. For today may be the last one you have. 
Are you saved this morning? Then my question to you is, are you in the battle? Or are you having a, a long extended uh, holiday break and leave from that? Do you have the power of God in your life? Can you see it working in your life? Do you experience it? Can other people see it in your life? Or is your candle covered up and they can't see that light at all? If then, repent and do it today. Because you too may not have tomorrow. You may be saved, but you may have squandered the only time that God had given you to actually serve Him and to glorify His name. Is the devil aware of you this morning? Does the devil know your name? And you might think, why are you asking me that, Pastor? I hope he does. I hope he knows your name. And I hope you give him a really hard time. Because if he doesn't know your name, you aren't a problem for him. He's got you sitting in a corner doing nothing. But if he knows your name, it means you've got him busy. Having to put resources to keeping you under control. Please, give him a hard time. Be on your knees. Be bold. Be fearless. Because your captain goes ahead of you. And finally, Daniel 10, 20 says, And he said, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. There is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. Yeah. Gabriel and Michael had a hard time getting that message across. There was a spiritual battle raging. So my message to you this morning, if you're a believer, um, let's get into that battle. Because these angels haven't stopped fighting for all that time. They're still fighting. There's still, there's still wars going on around us. Okay, Let's help them out. Will you do that? Will you help Gabriel, Michael, whoever other angels God has sent into this world to fight on your behalf? Will we not fight with them and make their job a little bit easier by diverting some of the debt, some of the enemy's uh, resources to us? Do it. Fight with all of your mind. Put God first in everything you do. And remember, we are here for a purpose. There's no reason to fear. But there are plenty of people who are heading for hell. Make the most of your time. God bless you. Thank you.